It is uh, good to gather together again. Thank you so much for being here. May the Lord bless you. Having a little bit of an allergy attack, so I'm not necessarily crying through the material, but bear with me, please. Uh, you can please, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, where we will uh, pick up our study today. You know, on a beautiful day like today, earlier in the morning, the cow manure was making its way here, but uh, that seems to have dissipated. But on a beautiful day today, like today, we are just reminded of how privileged we are uh, to be able to gather together uh, publicly uh, and proclaim the name of Christ. There are many of our brothers and sisters in the faith throughout history, uh, and even presently, that are not able to do that. And so... Uh, certainly we are grateful for that, and certainly in light of COVID and all of that, and having a facility uh, like this to be able to gather in this way, uh, we are grateful. And so my prayer, let's do that. Why don't we pray that the Lord would really bless us as a result of sitting under his word this morning. Father, we thank you for, Lord, your gifts, many of which uh, we almost have to stop and consider uh, for them to enter into our thinking because we just take them for granted. Lord, we're thankful for uh, the beautiful weather uh, that we're able to enjoy this morning. We're thankful for this back parking lot and this grass area uh, that just a few years ago we didn't have access to. Lord, we're thankful for the freedom in our country. We're thankful for the word of God, which each of us can have on our phones or in our laps. Uh, Lord, so many things you've been good. And Father, you've, uh, you've burdened us to sit under your word. You've blessed us, certainly, with the presence of your Holy Spirit ministering to us and from within us. And so we pray that you would once more faithfully do that through your word. Lord, you draw us into your presence. You've opened up. You would open up our hearts, our minds to receive from you. You challenge us with your word, even as you comfort us with your word. Lord, that you'd be present. You would teach us for your glory. And we pray our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. So go ahead and turn there if you haven't already done so. And while you are doing that, or again, if you already have, then just sit back for a moment or so. Let me just give you a little bit of context. Here we are in Acts chapter 8, and the story has pretty much been moving along. And, you know, we could draw the conclusion as we come to eight, that you know we're a couple of weeks into this whole thing of the the new church and the the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. In in reality, as we come to chapter eight, we are about four five years into the early church. Um, so this isn't just something that you know a couple of weeks ago these things happened. We're about three or five years now, uh, scholars think, into the church, and the church has seen. It's explosive growth. You remember thousands, three thousands came to the Lord on the day of Pentecost. Next chapter we read that the number of men was about 5,000. So, you know, we're talking about thousands or tens of thousands of people that had come to the faith in those early days. And they remained there in Jerusalem and they began to grow and they were taught by the apostles. And we spent our time considering those things. The reality is, though... That wasn't really God's desire. Perhaps it was for a period of time that they would sit, they would grow, they would learn. 
But the Lord's desire for them is that they would leave, that they would leave Jerusalem, they'd go back to their homes or they'd go out onto the mission fields and they'd begin to tell other people about the things of the Lord. And what seems to have settled in to that early church was this idea that I think settles into our thinking many times as well. And that is that we'll, we'll find a nice facility outside here, inside there. We'll put a sign up that says, all are welcome. Please feel free to come. When they do come, we'll graciously, graciously say to them, I'm so glad you're here. It is so nice to have you. I hope you find a home in this place. And all of that, we do that, don't we? That's what the church was doing essentially there in Jerusalem. But God's desire for them was that they leave Jerusalem and go into the uttermost parts of the earth. You remember the Great Commission, Jesus said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always as you go, even until the end of the age. You remember just before Jesus ascended into the heavens, prior to just before the Holy Spirit was poured out, he said this to his disciples. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So these disciples, they had the be my witnesses in Jerusalem down. They were really good at that. They were excelling at that. They were a little slow on the, and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth part. And that's about to be remedied in our passage of study for today. And in reality, it's about to be remedied in a way that they probably wouldn't have hoped uh, it would occur. Chapter 8 begins, verse 1. It says, now Saul approved of his execution. Now the context, if you were with us last week, you remember. If you weren't, just look back a few verses. The context is the execution of the first Christian martyr, the first martyr for the faith, the Christian faith, a man by the name of Stephen. He was, as you recall, dragged before the authorities. He was interrogated there in an illegal trial, and he was ultimately killed, killed by an angry mob of religious leaders convinced that they were doing the will of God. An angry mob of religious leaders determined to shut this man, Stephen, up. Verse 57 of the previous chapter, it says they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at Stephen. They cast him out of the city, and there they stoned him. They killed him. And if you haven't read ahead in the book of Acts, although I tell you, read ahead, but if you haven't, you could look at that and you could think, wow, what a tragedy. This man, this, this guy rising up, God using him, his life cut short. What a tragedy. I imagine many of you have read this before. You've probably sat under teaching where it was taught before. And so in some regard, it may not be as impactful as it once was. But the reality is, for those early disciples, here's one of their own being killed for telling other people about the faith. What a tragedy it must have initially felt to them. Because, of course, the church in Acts, we've already seen it, it's been opposed by the authorities. We saw earlier where the authorities arrested the apostles trying to intimidate them. 
We saw earlier in the book of Acts where they ordered them not to teach publicly or even speak privately in this name anymore about Jesus. They ordered them not to do so. That's when Peter and John said, well, we have to obey God rather than men. We're going to do what we're going to do. But we saw that sort of persecution. We took notice a little further along where the authorities beat the apostles. That word for beat there, again, I'll remind you, is a word. It, it's really, it, they skinned the apostles. They whipped them so that their skin opened up. And we saw that come against the apostles. But this is the first time that the church or a representative of the church, Stephen, has been killed. Prior to this point, that hasn't occurred. But now it has. What a tragedy we could see it as. Jesus said this day would come. Jesus said the day would come when the religious leaders would respond in the way that they did to Stephen Again, thinking they were doing the will of God in heaven. Jesus said in John 16, they will put you out of the synagogues. Now remember, that meant to be cut off from society. Couldn't buy things, couldn't sell things, couldn't go certain places, and you couldn't go to the synagogue. But Jesus would go on and say, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to the Lord. Jesus told his disciples this, and I imagine like Many of the other things Jesus told the disciples, they heard it, but they didn't really hear it. They didn't really expect it. I don't know if that's actually going to happen. Well, it's happening. And Stephen is the first person that it was happening to. The church, about five years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, has come to the place where for it to do what Jesus told them to do, preach the gospel, may actually cost them their lives. And Stephen is the first example of that. Turning to our passage, look at Acts 1. It continues. I read, Saul approved of his execution. It continues. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen... And they made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Even entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Excuse me. Now prior to this interaction with Stephen... The religious leaders of, the, of Jerusalem, people like this guy Saul that you read here, they sought to stop the church through intimidation. Now it transfers over to actual murder, execution. It's, it's almost as if there was a, like a, a dam that was plugged up a bit, and somebody pulled that plug, and the water just came pouring forth. Persecution came pouring forth toward the church, as soon as Stephen was killed, uh, the first one to be martyred. You'll notice it says in verse 1 that Saul approved of his execution. That word approved there, I, I think I said this last week, it, it actually means authorized. The concept, the idea is that Saul gave permission for Stephen to be executed in an illegal way. There was, this wasn't an official trial that went down, but Saul said, yeah, let's do it. 
And so the people had the authority from a Sanhedrin member, that's what Saul was, to put to death this Stephen. Again, the word approved there, it means authorized. An official representative of the religious leaders of Jerusalem authorized that people could be killed for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The authorities, religious authorities, they kind of crossed that line and they went all in. And they began to chase people. They began to even go into people's homes and drag them out of their homes and put them into prison. Another interesting thing about this word approved, this word authorized, it speaks of authorizing something with great delight. So this wasn't a reluctant, well, I go ahead, do it. I remember years ago, I decided to attend a town council meeting uh, for whatever reason. And as I'm there, they were talking about raising taxes and things like that. And we all love that. And there was a, a member of the council at the time who whenever they would have this vote on we're going to raise taxes on this, he would go, okay. That's how he, he would vote. Okay. And I felt like he was just trying to fake it. So he could say, well, I did it, but I didn't really want to do it. That's not what's going on here. The approval isn't one of these, well, I guess it's the only thing we can do. Let's do it. It's yes, let's do it. He does it. He authorizes it with great pleasure. It's a longing for this thing to be done. He's pleased with the decision. There are some in world history and present day that we might call reluctant persecutors. They persecute the church or whatever it might be, but they kind of do so reluctantly. What else are they going to do? Saul is not one of those people. Saul takes great pleasure in attacking these early Christians. He was the first truly great and deadly enemy of the church. Here's what it says a little bit later in the book about him. There's a fellow, his name is Ananias. He's a disciple of Jesus. He said, speaking to God, he says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, Saul. How much evil, what a strong word, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Another place we will read of the way that he went before the authorities, the religious authorities, seeking permission not just there in Jerusalem, but to go to other cities and persecute the believers as well. Saul, he's a man that's making it his personal mission to destroy the Christian faith. Now, verse 1 continues, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. And they, the church, was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now remember, when we talk about the church, we're not talking about a building, we're talking about people. People oftentimes, they'll go to a building, they'll come to a parking lot, and they'll sit, but we're talking about people. A great persecution arose against the people, those that name the name of Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation for the whole world, that everyone needs to hear. A great persecution arose against them. You'll notice it says that in the first couple of words there of the latter half of that verse, it says there arose on that day. That indicates that there's a new era in the history of the church. A new era that begins with the death of Stephen. Again, it, it sort of triggers this dam breaking and the, the waters pouring forth. It triggers 
this assault on the church. Luke says there arose on that day a great persecution. The floodgates have been poured, have poured forth. And Saul, who we're learning about, he's just one of those great persecutors. Again, the issue with Stephen, this is the, just one of the instances of what guys like Saul were doing. You'll be interested to know this is the first time the word persecution is used in the book of Acts. And it'll go on from here in the remaining 20 chapters or so to become a central theme of early church history. But this is the first time we see it. A harassing of someone in order to persuade them or force them to deny a particular belief system that they might have. The church is being persecuted. I said it earlier, initially that persecution was reserved for the leaders, the apostles. But now it's spreading to the entire church. A little later it's going to say both men and women. They're going to go into houses to find these people. Persecution's hitting the entire church. Notice it says in verse 1b, and they were all scattered. It goes on, it says, they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Does that sound familiar? Of, of Judea and Samaria? Maybe. It does to me. Because you remember what I read it earlier. You weren't listening. But we read it earlier. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria. Sound familiar, right? And so here we are now in Acts. The church is scattered out of Jerusalem into Judea and into Samaria. Again, remember, we're talking about, it's been about five years since this church has remained there in Jerusalem and primarily ministered there in Jerusalem. Again, the concept, you're more than welcome to come. We can't wait to have you. We're going to love you as opposed to going forth and going out. They remained in Jerusalem until this persecution forced them to scatter. It was the persecution that forced them to go out to other parts of Israel and even into the rest of the world. That which they had been reluctant to do, reluctant to leave. Now, it doesn't tell us why they weren't leaving Jerusalem. Initially, it seems they remained there to be taught. But after five years, you should be established in your faith. You should be ready to go and tell other people and help them grow in their faith. But for whatever reason they remained, maybe they remained there because it was a comfortable place. We love it here. Look at all the believers that are around us. We have our own little utopia. It's fantastic. Maybe it was a familiar place. Yeah, I know that I should move along, but this is comfortable. This is familiar. I don't need change. I'll just stay here. Maybe it had something to do with, look, it's, it's good here. I don't know what's out there. Why take the risk? Whatever the reason was that they refused to go forward and do that which the Lord commanded them to do. Go into all the earth and preach the gospel. We call that the great commission. You could reword that accurately, the great command. That was the Lord's command, to go into all the earth and to preach the gospel. But instead they remained there in Jerusalem until Stephen's death, and the great persecution that came against the church. 
So notice that God actually uses the persecution so that his word might be scattered abroad. He uses the persecution to accomplish his, per his uh, purposes. So from a human standpoint, the death of Stephen and the persecution that was unleashed following that is a tragedy. This is awful. This is terrible. This is the worst thing that has ever happened. But from a divine standpoint, it was not, a dark, it was not dark at all. Because the gospel was about to go forth to the ends of the earth and change the lives and the eternities of billions and billions and billions of people, both in that day and through the millennia, including your day. Isn't that something? God was going to accomplish his purposes through the difficulty of this persecution. God does use, he can and he will, he does use pressing circumstances to guide us into his will. Because the reality is this, we all have a tendency to remain where things are comfortable, to remain where things are familiar, to avoid having to venture into the unknown. And sometimes we need to be shaken by the Lord, by life's circumstances, to get out of the place of comf comfortability or the place that is comfortable and get to the place that God wants us to do what God wants to do in our lives. For these believers, it took persecution to get them moving out of Jerusalem. As one commentator, he said it this way, it was the persecution in Acts 8-1 that moved the church to obey the command of Acts 1-8. For the early church, it came in the form of persecution. What does God use in our lives? For some of us, it might be the loss of a particular job that opens up the possibility that other jobs actually exist or potentially even other careers exist. For some of us, perhaps it's not getting into that particular school that we had our hopes set on that causes us to even consider the possibility that God has a different plan altogether than that school that we had our hopes set on. For some of us, it might be the difficult and painful loss of a relationship, which finally brings us to that place where we begin to reevaluate things, things that are thoughts that would have never occurred had we not had the difficulty of that situation. For some, perhaps it's having, and we hear, hear this a lot, that bid you put in on that home in that perfect community that God wants you to be in get rejected again and again and again. Amen, Roger and Floss, wherever you are. You know that experience. It's not uncommon for the Lord to use circumstances that we would not have chosen for ourselves to push us to a different place where we can fulfill the plans that he has for us. I think this persecution is a lot like that mama bird that cruelly drops the little baby bird out of the nest because the mama bird knows that the baby bird can fly but the baby, you know what I'm talking about? Are you guys with me? But the baby bird's just a little afraid to do so. And so mom says, get out of here. And throws her out, throw it out. God in his wisdom had a plan. Now, lest you think I'm reading into this. Luke, he's the author, remember, of the book of Acts. 
Luke, I think, is trying to point that out with the word usage that he has in the original Greek. So it says there, and they were all scattered. It'll be interesting, perhaps, for you to note. There's two different words that are used in the Bible, in the Greek language, the New Testament Greek language, two different words that are used for scattered. One of them is the word that is used to describe, like when somebody scatters somebody's ashes. And so, you know, you go to the ocean or you go out to a field that a person loved or whatever it might be, and you scatter their ashes, and the ashes just sort of blow all over the place. That's one form of scattering. No real purpose, no real intent. They're going to dissipate, you know, all through the field or all through the ocean or whatever it might be. That's not the word that uh, Luke uses here. The other word for scattered is more akin to what would be used when a farmer goes out and scatters the seed or sows the seed. This is a good time if you're out and about driving in Hopewell, Lawrenceville, or something like that. Look at a farm because they're, they're pretty young. The, the uh, fields are pretty young right now. And you can look and you can see the perfectly lined places where they have sowed the seed. Farmer's not just throwing things around out there. He or she is purposeful with how they are planting those fields. That's the word that is used here. And so it says, and the church was scattered, and Luke uses a word which means with purpose. God was going to use this to accomplish his purpose. He was going to scatter his church around the world. And again, not in a way that the disciples might have chosen. Stephen's death and the subsequent persecution would have the consequence of spreading the gospel around the entire world because the church was scattered. Now, one group that didn't go you see there at the end of verse 1. How long have we been here? We're still on verse 1. Uh, it's been a little while. It says, it says uh, the church was scattered except the apostles. Now, there are some that I've read that have criticized the apostles for this. They didn't go. Look at that. They're still stuck in their ways and all that. I'm a little reluctant to critique the, the apostles for that. I certainly don't want to read something in the description that isn't clearly there. I think potentially this is one of those situations, kind of like the captain of the ship. I'll be the last one off, and we'll make sure every other disciple gets out of Jerusalem uh, before we leave Jerusalem. The, the apostles will eventually leave Jerusalem, except for James, who dies there in Jerusalem. And they'll make their way to other parts of the earth. All, they'll be scattered all over the place. And so it says here, nonetheless, except the apostles. Verse 2 goes on, Now devout men buried Stephen and made, great, and made great lamentation over him. That word devout men, it, means, it simply means God-fearers. It is commonly used in the Gospels and in early Acts to describe Jews that were God-fearers. Not necessarily, they're, they're not Christians yet, but they were God-fearing Jews, we might call them. Later on in the book of Acts, it's used to describe a Christian. He's called a God-fearer. So here in Acts chapter 8, we don't know if Luke is telling us that there were some Christians there in Jerusalem that went and got Stephen's body and, decided, and buried it with great lamentation, or if it were members of the Jewish community that were like, look, that was just wrong. That shouldn't have happened that particular way. That, that's a little more what I lean toward. 
I, I think the context seems to show that. And if it does speak of Jews that are looking at this situation, deciding to bury or give Stephen a decent burial, well, then that tells us something here. You'll notice it also says that they make great lamentation over him. They mourn his death. They have a very public funeral for this man. Jewish law prohibited the open mourning, and I would say great lamentation qualifies, but Jewish law prohibited the open mourning for the death of a person who died as a result of a criminal execution, which is how Stephen died. And so if these are, these devout men are Jews, then this is a mark of public protest. These are Jewish people that are saying that was wrong what happened, and it should not have happened. And so they take Stephen's body, they give him a proper burial, they make great lamentation over him at great risk to themselves. You remember when it said that Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus I believe is the other, they take the body of Jesus, they bury the body of Jesus. They did so at great risk to themselves. Remember, Jesus was executed as a criminal. These devout men. Well, Luke returns in verse 3 to this guy Saul. He says, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Again, Luke uses a Greek word here that is very descriptive. The word in, in my version, ravaging, I think some of your versions might say he made havoc or something like that. The word is typically used to describe an army destroying a city after they have taken that city. Or it's a word that is used to describe an animal ripping apart the flesh of its prey. It's a very violent word. And Luke chooses the word by design to describe the violence that was coming against the early church there. Again, it's typically used in a very violent context, and so it's meant to communicate brutal cruelty. Saul brutally, cruelly, violently set his sights against the church. Not just the leaders, but the church. Entering into homes, not just stopping people on the street, you know, that have the nerve to do what they're doing, going into people's homes and dragging people out. Committing them to prison, not just the men, but the men and the women of the church. Interesting, the tense of the word that is used, the verb tense of the word that is used there for ravaging, it's designed to communicate. He didn't just do this over a particular weekend. He didn't just do this one time, but he did it and he kept doing it. He kept persecuting the church, persecuting the per church, and persecuting the church. Eventually driving the church to run for its life around the world. This man Saul was determined. It was his mission he was going to put a stop to this Christianity. Again, no wonder the church was scattered with someone like that coming after you. But notice what it says in verse 4. Now those that were scattered went about preaching the word. The very thing that was getting them into trouble is the thing that they kept on doing. So this dispersal of the Christians, it didn't silence their testimony. It advanced their testimony. So when you end up in that place 
that you wouldn't have chosen for yourself to be, that doesn't need to be the end of your ministering. In fact, it can be the beginning of a fresh new start of ministry for you. Everywhere these believers went, they carried the good news of salvation in Christ to those they came in contact with. That word preaching, you see there, everywhere they went, they were preaching. That word, there's a lot of kind of Greek stuff this week, but that particular word speaks of a preaching that is not public in nature. Everywhere they went, they found the nearest street corner, they got up on a stone and they began, that's not the word that is used. The word that is used that is translated preaching means they talked with others. The idea being like one-on-one, a couple-on-one. That's the idea of what they did when they went forth. So these believers, you can picture this scenario. They come into a new community. People ask them, they say, ah, new around here? Where are you coming from? Oh, we're coming from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, I hear it's nice there. What brings you to our town? Funny you should ask. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And then they began to explain, explain what that meant and what was going on there in Jerusalem. Everywhere they went, they began to talk about Jesus and share their faith and their experience with Jesus. It's what the church should have been doing much earlier. But because of comfort and familiarity and whatever else was keeping them, they were not doing And so God, in his wisdom, used the persecution of a man named Saul and others. What Saul meant for evil, God would use for good, which is what we see him do throughout the scriptures. Again, many would hear the gospel who might otherwise have not heard the gospel because these believers were scattered abroad. And this persecution will lead to the most significant step forward in the mission of the early church with the advancement of the gospel around the world. And what was the cause of it again? Persecution. The difficulty, difficult persecution, something that the disciples would not have chosen for themselves. We might call these believers inadvertent missionaries, accidental missionaries, undercover missionaries. These were not people officially sent out, hands laid on, let us know how it goes. We can't wait to get your newsletter, monthly hopefully. Sometimes it's busy on the field. doesn't come every month. We get it every couple of months. That's not what they were. They were just regular old people going and telling others what they had seen and heard and experienced for themselves. It's what each one of us as followers of Christ, are called to be. Now, I think there's a place, certainly, for officially sending folks out. Sending folks out like the Simpsons to the nation of Kenya and the work they're doing. Sending folks out like Eric Leidick and the work that he and RHM are doing in the city of Trenton. There's a place for that. There's a place for short-term missions where we send a group of 5 or 10 or 20 people to places like Nepal or Belize or New Orleans or wherever else we've sent them to. There's a place for that. But the reality is this. Most people that come to the Christian faith do so because a friend or a relative or a coworker told them about Jesus, explained to them more fully what it means to be a follower 
of Jesus. Invited them. Why don't you come? I can tell you what I know, but why don't you come and see what God is doing? And inviting them to your place of worship here, to church, whatever it might be. That's the typical way that the kingdom of God advances. And for the vast majority of us, that's the way that God is going to use us as he scatters us abroad. Wherever you are, the place you work, the school that you attend, the gym that you go to. I go often, as you can tell. The neighborhood that you live in, the stores that you shop in, the clubs that you're a part of, and the people that you come into contact with, wherever you have been scattered, that's the mission field that God has for you. Begin to look for those mission opportunities. Listen, I've been on a lot of short-term missions over the years. I think differently when I'm on a short-term mission trip. I'm here in Belize, I'm here in Kenya, I'm here in Nepal, I'm here in Honduras, wherever it might be. I'm here for a week. And I'm looking for every opportunity while I'm there to tell people about the Lord. We go into a prison, I want to talk to every person I come into contact with, not about the weather, not about my favorite sports team, but about the Lord. Because that's why I'm here. I'll confess, I don't think the same way when I'm at the gas station when I'm at the grocery store, when I'm at the gym, and when I'm at this other place, talking with my neighbors. I believe I need to be. I believe we need to be. We have not been scattered in the sense of randomly, like scattering someone's ashes so they can just sort of blow around. We've been scattered by design, like a sower sowing his or her seeds. God has placed you where he has placed you for a purpose. Every one of us can be like these early Christians. Every one of us can share the good news of what Jesus has done in our lives by simply explaining what he has done in our lives. I want to encourage you in that. You say, I don't know what to say. Well, just be open and honest about who Jesus is, what he means to you, what he has done in your life. But in addition to that, pick up a book. Read. How do I share my faith with others? Do a little study. We're having an evangelism seminar here on June 12th by design, not just for those that are going on the boardwalk mission trip. I certainly hope every one of you will consider taking some time out to be here because it's designed to help you when you're sitting across from someone at, at work in the lunchroom or when you're talking with your neighbor and how to have a conversation about Jesus. I was in the grocery store the other day. And a lady had an Ocean Grove shirt on. And everyone at Ocean Grove is a Christian, right? That, that's like the rule. You have to be there, not necessarily. And I know that there are people that like Ocean Grove because it's sort of this family atmosphere, but it used to be, but don't necessarily know Jesus. And so I wanted to use the Ocean Grove thing on her shirt. Hopefully, she'll respond, and it'll lead to a conversation. She'll get saved. It'll be wonderful, and I can share a story here. And so I say to her, as we're in the, uh, the soap aisle, I say to her, you like Ocean Grove? It's a great beach, isn't it? And she said, uh-huh. And she walked away from me. Oh, well, I was fishing, and I didn't catch anything on that one. I stopped by a gas station the other day. There was a fella, he had, a, he had an accent. So I said to him, it sounds like you have an accent. Uh, where are you from originally? And 
in a very thick accent, he said, Tibet. I said, he said, have you been there? I said, no, I've never been to Tibet. I've been to Nepal because I've, the only reason I've ever been to Nepal was missions. I said, I've been to Nepal, and he got all excited. I couldn't understand him at all anymore. But he got all excited, started talking about something. And I said, you know why I went to Nepal, sir? And he, I think he said, no, why? And I said, because there are many people in Nepal that are becoming Christians and need to be taught the scriptures. And me and some friends went there to do that. Do you know the Lord? And so, and then I, I don't know what the man said. I, honestly, I couldn't understand his language, uh, his uh, accent. But in that instance, my fishing went a little further than the lady in the shop right. Uh, it didn't go so well. You see, I'm, we're looking for opportunities. Let's look for opportunities. I remember when Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa in the 1970s, maybe, late 60s, uh, the church exploded in a good sense. Lots of people were coming to the church and all that kind of stuff. And people from around America wanted to know, what's the secret? How do you, how do you get your church to be this big and all these people coming? And somebody inquired, you know, tell me, do you have committees like that do this? And Chuck, just, uh, Chuck Smith, pastor at the time, he just sort of thought about it. And he said, well, I guess we have one committee. He said, oh, what is it? He said, it's the evangelism committee. And he said, how many people do you have on that committee? He said, about 3,000 now because that's how many people were coming to the church. Everybody just told other people about Jesus and invited them to their place of worship where they could grow in their faith. That's our mission, friends, to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. You have been scattered to the place that you have been scattered, and you have a unique opportunity to talk to the people that you come into contact with on a daily basis. I encourage you, embrace that. Every morning, wake up, pray about it. Lord, who would you give me an opportunity to share this good news with today? If you're concerned that you don't know the words to say, pick up a book, come to a seminar, learn some techniques, but be close to Christ and people will see that and they'll ask you, what's the reason for the hope that you have within you? Where's the Lord scattered you? Where's the Lord scattered you? Let's pray. Father, there are tens, hundreds of thousands of people within 20 minutes of where we stand right now that don't know Jesus Christ. They have no plan for eternity. They're lost and dead in their sins, even as every one of us here, maybe some of us even presently, were lost and dead in our sins. And Lord, somebody spoke into our hearts the Holy Spirit used the words of someone that shared the truth with us, and we were converted. Lord, we know what we have been commissioned to do. We desire to see that certainly fulfilled, but somewhere in between, between what we know we need to do and what is ultimately our desire to do, there's a breakdown. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts that we have the words of eternal life and with great boldness we would share that with anyone that will listen to us. And Lord, would you use that in a powerful way that many, many, many will come to the faith. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.